live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. He does have a tricky body. Oh, he does. Okay. He doesn't look like, okay, look at if But that guy's walking down the street. You have no idea who he is. I don't know if you're saying, yeah, he's the best quarterback in the world. This is the Press Box. So we, our mean, tricky body list is James Harden and Patrick Mahomes. And yeah. now Patrick Mahomes runs kind of fun. With Grainy and Bischoff. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Travell Beck. Travell Beck's body is not tricky. We know exactly what Turbo Max body is. It is not tricky in any way, not at all. That is a complete lie. Stop trying to put Turbo Max in that category. On ESPN Las Vegas. Good morning and welcome to the press box. Ed Graney's out. Adam Candy is filling in for Ed the entire show. We will talk to Sam Gordon a little bit later in the show about some UNLV football and the semifinal bound Las Vegas Aces. We'll talk to Jason Fitz about the Raiders in their 2-0 start. And that's where we'll begin the show as well. Here is some Raiders. The first bite. All right, Adam. Do you believe in the 2-0 and o Raiders? Yes, and it's not a bad Verizon commercial. It's just us talking. Spectacular. All right. So, Adam, as I was asking, do you yes. believe in the 2-0 and o Raiders? I believe in the 2-0 and o Raiders more than I've believed in the 2-0 and o Raiders <laughs> in past years. How about that? Um, not the first time we've seen a hot start from a John Gruden team. Um this is a little different because of how it's happened. Um, it has happened with an offense that appears to have accepted that letting Derek Carr throw the ball more is going to be better for its long-term success. And with a defense that is okay, just okay, not great, <laughs> not terrible, just all right. And that's pretty much what you and I have described as the way for this particular Raiders roster to win. Now, Football Outsiders DVOA uh, says that the Raiders are uh, last among the 2-0 and teams, rated 19th both in the uh, weighted category that talks about what they've done this year, in the metric that uh, weighs what the preseason projections were. It basically says the Raiders are flat average in everything that uh, they've done so far. And, and it's a team that has won... A one-score game and a game that was 16-14 in the middle of the fourth quarter. So, yeah, I believe in the 2-0 Raiders more than I have in the past. Do I think it's a serious contending team? That is definitely still to be determined. So what I think is fascinating is the defensive side right now because Max Crosby is pro football focuses number one rated edge rusher. They're top five in the league in pressure rate this year, but they have blitzed a total of four times on the season. And the last two years, Gus Bradley's defenses were dead last in the NFL in blitz rate. So they are, they're not going to just start blitzing. They're going to continue to rush with just the four guys. And so far it's worked, but the Raiders right now, their pressure rate is 30% of dropbacks. They're getting pressure over the last five years. No NFL team has had 30% pressure rate without blitzing at least 15% of the snaps. And the Raiders are doing it on 4% of their snaps so far this year. So I would be stunned if the Raiders are able to generate that pressure over the course of the entire season. And I think once that comes back down to earth, once they're not generating 
that high of a pressure rate without blitzing that I think we start to see a little bit more of the secondary and the linebackers get exposed. But so far, they haven't played a team that really throws the ball down the field much, and they've gotten really good pressure on the quarterback, so teams can't take advantage of that and throw it down the field, even though I think that's where the weakness of this team is and where that will eventually be exposed. And it makes perfect sense, and that's where the caution should be. However, if you say that they're going to go from a team that's leading the league in the metrics that it is, then that fall off probably goes down to middle of the pack. Right. And middle of the pack for the Raiders, if the offense can continue to perform anywhere near the level that it is, is at least going to give them a chance every week. Because Derek Carr, last year, and in actually, frankly, his uh, other years under John Gruden as well, if you averaged out, had roughly five to six deep pass attempts per game. Uh, over the first two games, he has 10 deep pass attempts per game. Um, there is a strong case to be made that removing Josh Jacobs, and again, Josh <laughs> Jacobs is hurt, so it's not as though this is a conscious choice, but removing Josh Jacobs and taking John Gruden's binky away from him forced him to do what we've all been saying, which is seriously, go ahead and throw the ball way more often than you have been. And for once... The Raiders are doing it. I mean, the Raiders lead the league in air yards, as in actual yards gained when the ball is thrown to when it is caught prior to yards after catch with 420. They lead the entire NFL through two weeks. And it's not as though they've played the worst defenses in the league. Yes, you're playing a somewhat crippled Ravens team with uh, no Marcus Peters and no Jimmy Smith. And uh, then you're going against a Pittsburgh defense that frankly is supposed to be pretty darn good. So uh, there, there's more that you can believe in than in the past with what we've seen so far. Okay, let me ask you this. This offseason, the Raiders blew up their offensive line. Trent Brown, uh, Rodney Hudson, Gabe Jackson, all of them gone. They replaced him with Andre James, who had never, who, well, excuse me, had one start in the NFL at center, a rookie at right tackle, and it was going to be Denzel Good at right guard, but he tore his ACL. Richie Incognito has yet to play and has had some injury problems since re-signing with the Raiders hasn't been on the field a whole lot so they're playing an offensive line full of guys that frankly nobody's ever heard of and guys that just haven't played in the NFL did Mike Mayock sabotage the offensive line so that they couldn't run the ball so that John Gruden would be forced to throw the ball I think it's galaxy brain but <laughs> I think that's 100% what happened I, it's clear um, I, I think he he orchestrated the selection of Alex Leatherwood and his 14.3 pass blocking grade <laughs> from last week. Um, I, I think that he clearly made it so that John Gruden would have no choice but to throw the ball. Look, ultimately, uh, if you look at the way this line performed last week with basically one real starter to its credit, um, the pass blocking was actually really good. Um, Jermaine Illuminor, who couldn't make it out of Dolphins camp, uh, had an 88 pass blocking grade, likely not sustainable. Uh, Colton Miller had an 80. That might be sustainable. Uh, the run blocking grades were awful. The team still ran the ball 25 times for an average of two yards <laughs> per carry. Um, so John Gruden has not been cured of all that ails him, um, but he has been put into a position, as you just said, so, so astutely. Uh, where he does not have a choice but to throw the football. I mean, anytime you can give Peyton Barber 13 carries in a game, you just have to do it. 
especially in 2021 and not like 2015. <laughs> so, I, so okay, we're joking, but there is some truth to they can't run the ball. They're being forced to pass it. Passing is more efficient in this league. The best offense pass way more than they run. Pretty much every team should be passing more than they even are right now. Do you have any confidence that a, the offensive line gets better and Josh Jacobs gets healthy. And if that happens, that John Gruden kind of reverts back to, well, let's establish the run. And that's how we're going to make our offense work. Uh, to a degree, uh, Derek Carr right now by, uh, by football outsiders is the fourth rated quarterback in football. Now is all of this sustainable in terms of what we've seen so far? Mahomes, Stafford, Brady, one, two, and three. Okay. I mean, I can buy most of that with the uh, for those who believe in the Matt Stafford renaissance. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater is the number five quarterback I'm not exactly in on. <laughs> Russell Wilson, yes. Terod Taylor is on IR. Jimmy Garoppolo is handsome, but Jimmy Garoppolo. And uh, Kyler Murray and Dak Prescott round out your top ten. So I, I have been with you on some form of radio for four years saying Derek Carr is an above-average quarterback that you can win with. And I wonder if seeing the success that he's seen with Derek Carr over these first two weeks will lead John Gruden to say, all right, if it's working, then let's not uh, fix what isn't broken. Um, the other thing is, Derek Carr is doing something, Tyler, that we haven't seen him do before, and that is stand in the pocket, and even when he sees pressure coming, go ahead and wait for it and wait for the play to develop and take the shot. And he, we saw it on the play to Henry Ruggs for the game-deciding touchdown. There was a free rusher coming on Derek Carr. The Derek Carr that we've watched for years is a Derek Carr who is either going to throw that ball out of bounds or check it down to someone standing 10 feet from him. He stood in and waited for Henry Ruggs to clear down the field and dropped in a dime that won the game. So that is also part of the factor here. I think Derek Carr is doing things that he hasn't in past years. Uh, I think for his personal health, this is probably the worst year for him to finally decide to do that. Uh, possibly so. <laughs> Uh, but if Richie Incognito does make it back, I do think he'll stabilize some things, even when uh, the good side of variance that the Raiders have gotten in pass blocking the first couple of weeks starts to normalize. I am curious if turnovers come back to the Raiders here because, okay, turnovers in the NFL and football, it's the hardest thing to predict. If anybody could predict it, they'd make a fortune betting on NFL games. But the Raider, one of the better ways to try to figure it out is teams that are getting a good pressure rate. And the Raiders are getting a good pressure rate defensively. But on the offensive end, I, it's probably fair to expect the Raiders are going to be giving up a lot of pressures this year. And, I mean, Derek Carr has been sacked five times through two games. Not a massive number, but it's pretty big. So I do wonder if, if the turnovers start coming here for the Raiders. We know Derek Carr has had fumbling issues in the past. He doesn't really have interception issues, but... If he's going to stand in the pocket more, if he's going to throw down the field more, if he's going to give you know his wide receivers a shot when they're not wide open more often, there's going to be some more turnovers. And I am wondering if if that ever catches up to the Raiders, given where the offensive line is right now. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible. But I think if you also take a look at uh, the stats that uh, that I was looking at this offseason, um, Ted Seth, who does some uh, good work for pro football focus, put out some numbers that basically showed that Derek Carr doesn't throw a lot of interceptions. He just tends to throw them at the worst possible times <laughs> when he does. Um, and so if you take the interception side of things, then I think you can look at it and say that Derek Carr probably has made some progress in terms of 
in terms of when he throws the football. Now, on the fumbling side, when do we tend to see it? It's not like blindside pressures with Derek Carr. It tends to be when he gets happy feet in the pocket and tries to make too much happen. Well, if he's going to stand in and, you know, take things the way that he has in the first couple of games, then I think it might be a little bit different. I mean, again, I'm not trying to make you the, uh, you know, the Raiders are going to win 12 games case here because oh, it is still a team that when we deal with one score games is getting a lot on the right side of variance, right? Think about this. If the Ravens decide not to play the softest of coverages up by three points with 37 seconds left, then the Raiders are one and one right now. And if we also look at it with the Pittsburgh game and say if Derek Carr is even a hair off on that pass to Henry Ruggs with nine minutes remaining in the ball game, Pittsburgh gets the ball back, might take the lead, might not give it back. So now I'm not trying to tell you the Raiders haven't won two games. They've won two games. and That's all that matters in the end. But how they've gotten there, there certainly are questions about how long it can sustain without coming back to the mean a bit. All right. Coming up next, the Golden Knights are back. Kind of. It's just training camp. But get excited. Welcome back to the Press Box. Ed Grady is out today. Adam Candy is filling in. And training camp starts today for the Golden Knights. The first on-ice practice is Friday. First preseason game is actually Sunday. So there's not much time between now and the first actual preseason game. But the Golden Knights came into the league one of the most popular teams right off the bat. They broke a bunch of jersey sale records. But the Seattle Kraken are already breaking those, apparently. Uh, Brian Jennings, who's the NHL's chief brand officer, told ESPN, Vegas set a pretty high bar, but the Kraken are blowing through it hourly. It's a hot market right now. And Adam, I'll say, I was in Seattle this weekend, went to the Seahawks game, obviously saw a lot of Seahawks stuff there. But outside of that, the other days that I was in Seattle, I think I saw more Seattle Kraken hats and shirts than I did Seattle Seahawks stuff. That's saying something. Wow. I mean, and, and more than Sounders, too. And more and like the one Mariners hat I saw the entire weekend. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't blame anybody for that one. But I, a couple of things are at play here. First of all, we know just how desperate the Seattle market has been for something to feel good about uh, for a while here when it comes to either basketball or hockey. Uh, and they've got their hockey. Uh, the second thing is, and this is something that the Golden Knights did not have working in their favor, the logo is actually cool. Um, <laughs> it, it is actually a fun logo that I would look at just objectively as a fan of the New Jersey Devils and still look at and say, I could wear that hat. Like, that'd be pretty cool. I, I, I like the Kraken. Um, it, so it's a cool name. It's a cool logo. I, I bet that you're doing a lot of business from outside the market, too. Uh, Ed Grady bought one of those hats, too. Like, when it first came out, Ed decided he had to have a Seattle Kraken hat. I think it took it, like, two months to show up, but Ed Grady bought one, too. It's, okay, let me ask you this. So, we see Vegas and this market explode, and a lot of that had to do with the team actually being good, but it was popular before the team actually came in and started playing games. And now we see Seattle, and at least as far as jersey sales goes, very popular, can the NHL do this in any remotely big city they're not in? Or is this just like a Vegas and Seattle thing and any other city that they would put an expansion team in wouldn't necessarily be this popular right off the bat? So you're telling me the Branson Bruisers would not be a highly successful <laughs> I give franchise like, in terms of merchandising? I give you like Houston or a city with more than five people. 
Okay, fine. Uh, Houston, yes, I think you would probably still have a pretty big response in Houston. Yeah, you've got a couple of unique markets, right? You have a Vegas market that never had pro sports before, and you have a Seattle market that, frankly, I, I you tell me if you saw this actually in action. I assume that most Seattle residents go to bed every night with a 8x10 of Kevin Durant on their nightstand that they cry softly <laughs> as they look at and say, where are my Sonics? I want my Sonics back. Yes. So, yeah. The, okay, I'm glad you saw that. The so-, so it was it was Kraken and Seahawks were like tier one of gear that I saw. Tier two would be the Sonics, and then tier three would be, uh, well, actually, tier three would just be the Sounders, and somewhere below everything was the Mariners. Oh, Mariners. <laughs> Hanging out in the wild card race for no good reason. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't blame them. Um, when it comes to the Kraken, though, and the Sonics, I mean, look, the, the reason Seattle is a unique market is because it's a market that has felt wronged, and it's a market that felt as though they did not do anything that should have deserved losing their basketball team. And much like Vegas, it's a market that's been kind of constantly teased for a while, like, you might get basketball back, you might get hockey back. So... It's, it's markets in Vegas and Seattle that both have built up the demand, right? Both have built up the idea of we really want something. So to see that get to pour out uh, in the way the jersey sales are going isn't totally shocking, right? No, I don't think too much it is. Um, curious to see how the Kraken are in year one and how that fan base reacts to what is presumably not going to be a Stanley Cup contender like the Golden Knights had right off the bat. Uh, something else in the road hockey. So the Athletic does every year... A, they pull fans and they get them to basically rank the front offices in the NHL. And the Golden Knights checked in by just Golden Knights fans as the 19th best front office in the NHL. Now, to contrast that, non-Golden Knights fans ranked the front office here in Vegas as the ninth best. So 19th versus ninth. Um, Is that simply Marc-Andre Fleury got traded away? Well, my question to you is, what was the methodology for the survey? Because I want to know how many times Alan Walsh was allowed to vote. Uh, (laughs) I feel that if you allow Alan Walsh to stuff the ballot box, that's how the Golden Knights become the 19th best front office in the NHL by their own fans. Um, BGK fans ranking them uh, uh, at that spot opposed to 10 spots better by non-BGK fans shows that the rest of the league continues to look at Vegas and say, you didn't suffer for a minute and we hate you, uh, versus Golden Knights fans saying, Marc-Andre, no! So, yeah, it's, uh, you know. Imagine imagine that you did a survey of people who had gone to the vet and just been told that by the vet, like, hey, I'm sorry, I think we're going to have to let Fluffy go, right? Like, you go and survey people like, how do you think your vet's doing right now? You're like, well, pretty bad. (laughs) That's kind of how everybody around here seems to feel. So the way the athletic does this survey is they have a handful of categories and they ask fans to rank like how, how confident, how much they like their front office in each of those categories. So for example, one of them is cap management. Golden Knights fans ranked the front office here in Vegas, 25th best in the league in cap management, or they have the 25th most confidence in them at cap management. That seems like a fair ranking, given that they had to play the Colorado Avalanche with approximately seven skaters in a regular season game because of their cap management. They also came in 29th in drafting and developing, which I also think is 
fair because they haven't really put anybody on the ice that they actually drafted and developed other than Nick Haig so far. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Before you go on with that, Tyler, okay, okay. I, I, I will argue this. They have drafted and developed players who are playing well for other teams. That is true. And and right. to be fair to them, they turned them into Max Pacioretty and Mark Stone. Like it, they, they got, It's not like the guys they drafted in the first round turned into complete nothings. Uh, but that is the next category is trading. The Golden Knights came in at 18th, which I feel like is a little low. I mean, when we look back, the Max Pacioretty trade doesn't look great. But it also, it's not like that was a bad trade for the Golden Knights. They've gotten tremendous production for Max Pacioretty. They're a Stanley Cup contender, and Pacioretty's one of the important players on this team. But you look at the Mark Stone trade, you look at stuff like when they bring in Robin Leonard or uh, Matthias Janmark. Like, I think they've made, Chandler Stevenson was the other one, I think they've made some really good trades at the high end, obviously, with Mark Stone, but also sort of at the low end when you talk about a Chandler Stevenson being as productive as he's been. So I thought 18th was low. Uh, 10th in roster building, 7th in free agency. But the biggest one to me that I had an issue with was Golden Knights fans ranked their own front office 16th in vision. Now, that's a very vague, generalized term, vision. But I don't know how you can say the Golden Knights aren't like top five in vision. They're trying to win the Stanley Cup. The front office will literally trade away the most beloved player on the team because they think it gives them a better chance to win the Stanley Cup. I'd put them like top three in the NHL in vision right now. I'm not going to argue with that. What I will argue with is that 18th in trading, and I'll argue hard with that because I think if you're going to talk about 18th in trading, if you're a Golden Knights fan, you need to have some perspective. And it's not just about trading away Marc-Andre Fleury. Go back to the expansion draft. Go back to the way that they manage the roster in terms of being able to build this team from year one. That, to me, shows not only vision, but the ability to trade and the ability to roster build. There's a reason that your team is competing and has competed every moment since it first started playing in this city. So overall, don't get tunnel visioned on the Marc-Andre Fleury thing. And I'm not just talking about for ranking them uh, 19th overall. Look at the fact that the Mark Stone trade, quite honestly, hasn't hurt you for a second. And although you had to pay market rates to keep him here, um, Eric Brandstrom is never going to give you what Mark Stone has given you over these years. And the Max Pacioretty trade, yes, Nick Suzuki came in and shoved it down your throats in the playoffs. I get it. But Max Pacioretty is a top-line player that doesn't come along very often. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into the NBA because Ben Simmons says he's never playing for Philadelphia again. In today for Ed Graney and a fun report from the NBA yesterday. Adrian Wojnarowski, the Philadelphia 76ers all-star Ben Simmons will not report for opening of training camp next week and intends to never play another game for the franchise. Simmons hasn't spoken to the team since a late August meeting when he communicated this message to Sixers officials. Why do I read that? And my only thought is Ben Simmons is out here saying, no, 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 I'm breaking up with you. <laughs> yeah, um, this is where Ben Simmons can make it hurt, right? Like Joel Embiid and Doc Rivers can have their emotional reactions after getting knocked out of the playoffs. And Ben Simmons can take it quietly. And then he can come back to the franchise after they've had an offseason of not being able to trade him and come back and say, yeah, well, I'm not playing for you anyway, um, and cause a major hole in this roster, at least for now. So if Ben Simmons is prepared to sit, then there's really not a whole lot the Sixers can do. 
So, okay, what what kind of package do you think they end up getting for Ben Simmons? Because it's, I don't know, it's fascinating because it feels like there would be some teams that would put legitimate value on acquiring Ben Simmons. And it seems like there'd be a lot of other teams that would say, absolutely not. We don't want that anywhere near our organization. So like, what the hell do the Sixers end up getting when they eventually trade Ben Simmons? Tyler, I think it's like playing in any fantasy league where you value your players a lot differently than the teams you're trying to trade with, right? Like you've got a guy you've held on to for a few years who you think is one of the, the cornerstones of your team, even though he probably hasn't been as good as you think he has, especially for the last couple of years, because now you're willing to talk about trading him. And so if you're the Sixers with Ben Simmons, you're looking around the league and probably finding out that everybody doesn't value him the same way that you do. And that's for good reason. You built the roster around a guy who can't shoot <laughs> and you have been willing to do that. You, as one franchise, have been willing to go out there with Embiid in the middle, who obviously is not a shooter, and Ben Simmons, who even more obviously <laughs> is not a shooter, and you've been willing to build the franchise around them. It's almost like if the Baltimore Ravens wanted to trade Lamar Jackson. There are going to be teams that say, absolutely, we want that threat, and there are going to be teams that look at the film of Lamar Jackson throwing the ball and say, did he throw a jump pass on Sunday night football? <laughs> so you're probably going to have a hard time finding the value that you think you deserve. Can I ask you what fantasy player were you referring to? Because it sounded like you had very somebody very specific in mind. Oh, years of Raul Abanez. <laughs> years of Raul Abanez being solid and being very low priced in the auction league that I had him. And nobody else looking at Raul Abanez and seeing the 100 RBIs he was delivering every year. <laughs> I knew there was a specific player there. So here, okay, this is going to be a terrible, terrible comparison because Giannis is amazing. But to me, the perfect like setup for Ben Simmons is kind of what the Bucks did with Giannis. And that is you've got a guy who's really good at attacking the rim, who's really good at getting layups, but doesn't have much of a threat as far as a shooter and the Milwaukee Bucks built a roster where they're like, all right, our, even our centers are going to be shooting threes. We're going to go get Lopez and we're going to, we're going to spread the floor as much as possible. And we're going to make you essentially decide you're going to guard and help on Giannis getting to the rim, or are you going to give us some threes here? And I feel like that's how you have to build a team around Ben Simmons for it to work. But Ben Simmons is not Giannis. And I don't know that if I'm an NBA team, I have any interest in even attempting that. So Giannis, for his career, is obviously not a great three-point shooter, right? The last couple of years, he's been a 30% three-point shooter. That's not something you want to build your roster around. However, the, the way this comparison falls apart for me is that Ben Simmons is a 0% three-point shooter, right? <laughs> like Giannis at least makes you defend him all the way out to the perimeter. Whereas with Ben Simmons, if you decide that his man is going to sit back at the free-throw line and just say... Yeah, go for it if you want. Uh, it's a different story. I'm not trying to undervalue Ben Simmons. I thought there was uh, some great reporting uh, earlier in the offseason that talked about uh, his defense and his ability to create plays. But, Tyler, I, I can't help but go back to the play that has become the sort of ever-present meme about Ben Simmons of him standing underneath the hoop by himself in the playoffs and looking for somewhere to pass. Um, I, I don't know how you get past that 
if you're a team looking at trying to acquire Ben Simmons and say, hold on, are, are you mentally broken right now? Are you at a point where you don't believe that you can be a scorer? So that is a massive issue, and it's a massive issue if you as an organization think that Ben Simmons is going to be your best or even your second best player and contend for a title or even in some cases just contend for a playoff spot. So let me ask you this. If you if I told you Ben Simmons is on your team, you've got to figure out a way to make it work. Like, what's the role? Like, what are you trying to do with Ben Simmons? Are you just like making him a power forward? Like, are you trying to turn him into Draymond Green? Like, like, what are you doing if you have to make Ben Simmons work? I think what I'm trying to do is something that's out of this era, like not of 2021. I look at him and you know who I see? I see Scottie Pippen, right? I see a guy playing the three who can slash and defend. Um, the You know, the, the problem is Scottie Pippen was always playing with the greatest player of his generation. So it's hard to make that comparison apples to apples. But I look at it and I say, I have to put him on a roster, I mean, duh, with spot-up shooters because he has to be able to slash and distribute. Um, but I also have to have four other shooters on the court at all times. And I don't know how you do that. I, I really don't because I think you end up with deficiencies elsewhere. Look at the Bucks. I mean, yes, I get it. The team won the NBA championship. You can only say so much. But they won it because you have a freak playing the four, quite literally. Like you can't have Robin Lopez on every roster and be able to sustain it defensively. So, you know, if you're if you're the team looking at acquiring Ben Simmons, I think you have to have a lot of that roster in place already. Frankly, the team that I look at that I think makes all the sense in the world, and this doesn't have four shooters, but it's got two world class ones, would be Golden State. I look at the roster they have and think, yeah, I could I could find a way to use Ben Simmons because Steph can play off ball enough that I can make this work or I can play Steph on ball in the minutes that Ben Simmons sits. Now, the Warriors owner did just come out and say that trading for Ben Simmons doesn't fit anything they're trying to do. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's not the way that uh, it's not the way I look at that roster, but uh, I'll t I'll ask you, do you think there's a team out there that makes perfect sense for uh, acquiring Ben Simmons? What so what am I trying to accomplish? Cuz like uh, BetMGM they have the odds for most likely team to trade for Ben Simmons and the Minnesota Timberwolves were the top team. Do I think the Minnesota Timberwolves are like championship contenders with Ben Simmons? Absolutely not. Can they be playoff contenders? Maybe. Would they be interesting and more fun than they are right now with Carl Anthony Towns and Ben Simmons? Yes, because the other teams on that list were the Rockets and the Kings, two other teams that are way outside the playoff picture. So like, it depends on what I'm trying to accomplish as an organization. Those teams sound like, yeah, if we trade for that guy, maybe we can sneak our way into the playoffs, and I could get that. But if I'm an organization that's trying to win a title, I think I'm staying as far away from Ben Simmons as possible. The problem, again, is that he does not fit the modern NBA. And as good as you want him to be defensively, as good as you want him to be as a distributor, his deficiencies as a shooter are so notable and so strong that you can't value him the way the Sixers do in acquiring him without destroying your roster. Ben Simmons is a career 16-point-a-game scorer who last year averaged 14 points per game. And we haven't even mentioned Tyler yet. 
the 61% free throw shooting. <laughs> so, you know, he's not e he's not even getting the easy points when he gets to the rim, right? If you could live with it, if he gets to the rim, gets to the line and shoots 85% and is averaging 20 points a game, but when you're giving away the free points and in the playoffs, you looked like a player who was damaged goods from the line. All of these things add up to, I can't give the Sixers what they want to bring in who Ben Simmons really is. All right, so let me ask you, the, we've seen Giannis on one end, a guy that's not much of a shooter, but Bucks built the team around him. They won a title. He's fantastic. We've seen on the other end of this, a guy that shoots even worse than Ben Simmons and how poorly this has gone in Philadelphia. Similar profile player to those two is Zion Williamson. What happens with Zion? Do you think he's more likely to trend towards Giannis where, wow, this guy is incredible. And if you build your team the right way, you can win a title. Or is he more likely to trend to Ben Simmons where, wow, this guy can't shoot and just doesn't fit the modern NBA well enough. One of these things is not like the other. And to me, it's the athleticism of Ben Simmons, right? What you just mentioned is Giannis and Zion. So Giannis and Zion, uh, especially for their frames, are unreal athletes who can do things that nobody else can do. Um, ben Simmons is 6'11". I think we do tend to forget that. Um, but he also does not have the pure athleticism that a Giannis or a Zion do. Now, you asked me the question, what happens with Zion? And look, Zion and Zion's family, and I use that term very clearly because every article I read uses the term, uh, Zion and Zion's family have sent every sign possible to the New Orleans organization that he is already looking at real estate in other cities. Like, I don't think this ends with Zion Williamson signing a long-term contract with the New Orleans Pelicans. I think this ends with another franchise deciding to build around Zion as a revolutionary four. Right? I think he's a power forward who can shoot. And I think everything Zion can do is a much wider skill set than Ben Simmons. So to me, if you ask me how this all ends, it ends with Giannis and Zion being players you can build an entire roster around and Ben Simmons having to be, frankly, a really good number two or maybe even number three on a roster that has some players who are equipped for today's NBA and how they score. Is that real estate that Zion's looking at in New York? I'm not doing this to myself. I can't. I can't. I can't take the heartbreak. I can't even start with this because I know the way this goes. Like this goes with me saying, of course, he's trying to get to the garden and it ends up with him being another toy in Steve Ballmer's pocket in L.A. That's where it ends up. He's going to be in L.A. with Steve Ballmer. Come on. I think, yeah, he's going to replace Paul George. Come on. The Knicks will finally land a free agent, won't they? Don't do this. Don't do this. It's not fair to me. They'll finally do it's it. It's cruel of you. They'll finally land one. Every year, they're close. This time, they'll finally get it. It's the Mecca. It'll be Zion. He would be great with Julius Randle. Oh, wait. No, they play the same position. Yeah, you can get rid of Julius Randle. Regression to the means coming. It'll be fine. All right. Coming up later today right here on ESPN Las Vegas is the Marcus Arroyo radio show from Parkway Tavern. That starts at 630 you can head by and meet Coach Arroyo and ask questions if you want to or listen to it right here on ESPN Las Vegas starting at 6.30. Martell takes the snap. He's going to roll to his right. Rolling, rolling, looking. He fires down the field, and the pass is incomplete. And the Rebels will turn it over on down. 
UNLV is back on Friday night on the road against Fresno State, who's now in the top 25 after beating UCLA. So it'll be three straight games that UNLV plays against a ranked team this year, even though Arizona State has now fallen out of the polls. But uh, SP Plus is a analytics. It's a ranking system for college football that Bill Conley has over at ESPN. And right now, UNLV has a 19 percent chance to go winless this year. Uh, UConn actually has the highest chance to go winless at 49%. Arizona's up at 30%. Navy is at 20%. And UNLV has the fourth highest chance to go winless this year at 19%. So, Adam, are they going winless? Do you believe in the 19%? We got to play UConn! So UConn, if you've seen any of them playing football this year, <laughs> is just abysmal. It's it's as bad as you could possibly watch. Um, the University of Arizona, um, I'm trying to remember who did they lose to this know. past yeah, weekend. What happened? The Northern Arizona, your Northern Arizona, my Northern Arizona Lumberjacks. Uh, went to Tucson and hung 21-19 on Arizona. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess they're probably not going to uh, be very good. And they have to play in a Pac-12 that uh, also is not very good. So maybe that's why it's only a 30% chance for Arizona. Uh, Navy, of course, plays an independent schedule, and then we get to UNLV at 19. Tyler, I feel like the only reason UNLV is at 19% is because the bottom of the Mountain West isn't good. Um, because... It feels to me like, strangely, the middle of the Mountain West is kind of better than we thought it was going to be, which complicates UNLV's chances quite a bit. Uh, uh, our colleague, Steve Cofield, a few weeks ago before Fresno State became nationally ranked, had identified this Friday's game as one of the ones he thought the Rebels could compete in. <laughs> so um, I'm starting to have my doubts about that, maybe even stronger than I did before. Um, but I, I don't think you can trust that UNLV is going to win a game so long as they are rolling some combination of four different quarterbacks onto the field. Who, wait, who do you think is the bottom of the Mountain West? Because before the year started, it probably would have been like Utah State and New Mexico were down there, but Utah State's undefeated. They got a win against Air Force. New Mexico's only loss so far is Texas A&M. Like, is the bottom of the Mountain West just UNLV? Probably Hawaii, too. Okay. We'll put, we'll put Hawaii down there. That's so November 13th, is that the day we should circle for when UNLV could get a win? Oh, 100%. And I actually said that earlier this week. Uh, I, I think the one game that you circle is the Hawaii game here, which, of course, we know Ninth Island and all is going to be another Iowa State game where UNLV is going to sound like the away team in its own building. But, um, Tyler... I know you're not going to go out to the Marcus Arroyo Coaches Show and ask questions today, as you uh, suggested our fans do earlier. So let me ask you here. Uh, is there a game that you think UNLV can win this year? I do think they can beat New Mexico. I don't think they will. That game is on the road. Uh, Hawaii is one that's up there at the top. Those are the only two. I don't think they have any chance the next two weeks. Um, maybe if Utah State comes back to earth, there might be a shot there. But when they go San Jose State, Nevada, and then when they end the year, San Diego State Air Force, I just, I don't think there's much of a shot there. I think there's maybe three games left on the schedule and they've probably got a less than 50% chance to win all three of those. So, or to win one of those three, excuse me. So, I, yeah, it's, I think, you know, statistical probability suggests they will win a game. 
but it's it's just hard to find it. Yeah, it is hard to find, and I uh, I can't look at the quarterback situation and feel any confidence. So we're pining for Doug Broomfield, right? We're talking about Doug Broomfield and saying, oh, well, it sucks that he's gotten hurt after he was starting to show out. It was a 41 completion percentage. Like, let's not overblow what the Rebels have. Yeah, there were we're some just, drops. We're, we're just talking about having a little bit of hope, right? And, and Broomfield appears to give them a little bit of hope uh, that you obviously did not see with Rodgers. Uh, you can't ask it of a true freshman in Friel, and Tate Martell is who he is. So, you know, do you think UNLV is any closer to solving this quarterback situation than they were at the end of last season? No, because like you said with Broomfield, it's it's more okay. The reason that we want to see Doug Broomfield is, and I'll give you the eye test from somebody who hates the eye test. They just looked more competent on offense. You thought, oh, they could actually score some points if this guy is the quarterback. Not that he was setting the world on fire, but they just looked like, oh, they've played this sport before. When pretty much anyone else has been in a quarterback. They don't look like that. They do not look like they've actually played the sport of football before. So it's more about going from the very bottom, tripping over the bottom level of what you're expecting from an offense to just, yeah, they look competent out there. But the issue is, is even with Doug Broomfield, like they still couldn't manage to come back and beat Eastern Washington. They still weren't actually going to beat Arizona State with that out there. And even if you just have slightly competent, it's, it's hard to find a team that UNLV is better, even if Broomfield's healthy the rest of the season. So I don't know where UNLV goes from here. It's going to be really tough to find a win, but there's nine games left. So I think there's a really good chance they could actually pull one out. I just have a hard time actually finding it.